0: This evening's talk is about investigation, the discrimination of states which is the second factor of enlightenment. What is it that enables us to move towards taking on being a Buddha or as one of my Burmese teachers says what makes one a true heir of the Buddha? In response to this question we'll begin with just a brief uh, review of mindfulness. So considering for a moment as we discussed in our exploration uh, of mindfulness uh, last week Have you ever had the experience of getting to know someone and finding out that they're not at all like what your initial preconditioned perceptions and judgments of them were? Without mindfulness we're very often caught unaware in our initial perceptions of and our reactions to things because we're so blindly run by our conditioned habitual ways. Without a mindful presence we could say that our relationship to most all of our experiences like this everything we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, everything we think is immediately interpreted back to us in conformity with our habitual thought patterns, our habitual ways of experiencing. What this means is that we're living at a distance from experience. We're living at a distance from life itself. And this can be like a vicious circle that feeds itself. Feeding the mental fixations, feeding the grooves of habit, they just etch deeper and deeper. We're more and more often than just running an automatic pilot and not realizing that this is what is occurring and that it, that our life can be different than this. Mindful Presence is a powerful way of changing our mind, changing our heart, and thus changing the way that we relate to ourselves, people, things, situations, and this world. Connecting with an open-hearted, focused, and clear awareness is what's needed in all instances. And as the Buddha says, it's what's needed as a seasoning of salt in all sauces. This is mindfulness that's needed, like a seasoning in salt in all sauces. This is what begins and allows the process of release and transformation of our painful, unskillful habits. So you can see why uh, the Buddha said that mindfulness is the first and the overarching factor of enlightenment. Mindfulness is a refuge for the heart, a refuge for the mind, and what affords us our greatest protection throughout our whole life, throughout the whole of our practice. As a basis for our discussion on in investigation, I'd like to just repeat the short definition of mindfulness that was offered last week in our exploration of this factor. Mindful awareness is about paying an extraordinary kind of attention, a non judging, non manipulative, non grasping, non-rejecting attention to the present moment's experience. And when this extraordinary attention of mindfulness is coupled with the quality of open-hearted investigative exploration, we're gifted for a moment or maybe for many moments with what sometimes feels like the magic of moving out of delusion directly into reality. We're gifted with opening to some degree of experiencing and knowing the true nature of things. It's really not our usual way to be so present in the moment. And so we train the heart, the mind, to just simply connect, feel, see, and know what is. What is this? How is it right here, right now? There is a phrase that the Buddha used, ehipasika, which translates as come and see, a hipasika. This is an invitation from the Buddha to come and see. Not to come and believe, but to come and see for ourselves what's true. To come and see in this way requires a great interest, a willingness and a courage that includes a growing faith that blossoms out of our own experience. An interest, willingness, and courage to look directly, deeply, and honestly into the body, the heart, and the mind with humility and without relying on what others say is true through what we've read or what we've heard. come and see in this way requires that again we don't settle into the inertia of our habitual perceptions of, our relationships to, our identifications with our inner and outer experience. This interest, willingness, and courage is the quality that keeps practice alive from the very beginning and ongoing through all the years of our practice. With this evening's talk, we'll explore the investigative and discerning aspect of mindfulness, the, act, the aspect of mindfulness that's fueled by the Buddha's invitation, Ehipasika investigation or discrimination of states, this second factor of enlightenment. The investigation, the discrimination of states, both bodily and mental states, is the activity of mindfulness. It illumines the object. We see the object of our mindfulness clearly, investigation has the potential to penetrate and illumine things, to light up bodily and mental experience right into its core, showing us both the individual characteristics and the universal essence or the ultimate reality of any given experience. This factor of enlightenment has the potential to dispel darkness. The darkness of not seeing, the darkness of ignoring how it is. Investigation eliminates bewilderment and confusion. The not seeing, the not knowing of delusion and ignorance. It's like walking into a a pitch dark room with a very bright flashlight. When things are brightly lit, what's already present is then clearly seen, is known and confusion is dispelled. In our practice, investigation means that we experience directly without the mediation of concept. So for example, And please note that this um, example can be a metaphor for any physical or mental phenomena. A breath is known. A breath is experienced and known. And maybe you see and know it at the level of simply knowing in, simply knowing out, which is still based in the world of concept investigation without putting on glasses. Then you put on the metaphorical glasses and directly know a long or short or deep or shallow breath. Or you may connect connect simply and directly with the movement of the breath at the nostrils, experiencing the touch sensations around the edges of the nostrils or in the space between the nostrils and the upper lip. Beginning now to move from conceptualizing the breath to direct experience. And then you look through the microscope with the lowest power lens. The whole in-breath is felt and known from beginning to end the whole out-breath is felt and known from beginning to end. And maybe much to your surprise you find that each in-breath and each out-breath isn't necessarily the smooth ongoing experience that you've been used to knowing, used to experiencing. Even though it might be quite subtle Maybe you begin to feel and know it very clearly as happening in tiny segmented sections rather than as a smooth flow. And now as you come closer, getting more intimate with the experience of breath, you begin to see it just as simply happening on its own without you controlling it. The heart, mind, and body are relaxed and interested in what's occurring, not thinking about it, just simply present, receptive, and interested. As you relax more, with interest growing even brighter, the microscope lens powers up the idea, the concept of breath, falls away. The mind is settled and collected. Potential distractions have little or no attraction. The subtle sensation at or just below the nostrils is felt and known with maybe the most predominant experience being a particularly subtle flavor of light vibration with each movement of the breath. Who's breathing? Who's breathing? Breath isn't what you thought it was or at least for the moments that you've stopped thinking about it and are just simply, directly, and mindfully present, clearly discerning the experience with a deep and complete trust in those moments, a trust that this is just enough. Nothing else needs to be done. The mind, the heart is open, receptive, spacious, and at ease in this direct and simple connection to experience. As concentration and mindfulness continue to develop, the way of things continues to reveal itself. This is our practice. This is our training. I'd like to spend a, a bit of time now exploring what we could call our life as a creative process, our life as our practice, with mindfulness and investigation being the root from which stem the beautiful blossoms of wisdom and all the myriad ways that creative energy, which is what free is freed up within us when the heart, the mind is purified through our practice all the myriad ways that creative energy blossoms throughout the whole of our life practice itself is very akin to creative process practice as we know is a vehicle for peeling away the layers of our habitual conditioned perceptions and reactions and is a vehicle that has great potential for revealing the interdependent and selfless nature of all physical and mental phenomena. So, for instance, whether it be the immediacy and spontaneity of a moment-to-moment visceral or mental connection and response in relationship to the moving body or via receiving what's seen, heard, smelled, tasted or touched without interposing the self. In other words, connecting with things directly. We could say that the creative process or life as a creative process and our life as our practice is in a sense about forgetting what we've previously learned, meaning forgetting what we think we know about the subject, which is actually a necessary step in seeing and knowing body-mind phenomena more directly and clearly and responding appropriately. This so-called forgetting stops the mind from knowing in its habitual, habitual conditioned ways. At this point then one is confronted with the object itself and one's usual way of knowing is arrested. The heart, the mind is open, receptive, appreciative, able to respond to the inner experience, the tone, the shape, the texture, the mind state, etc. and its changing nature, be it mental or physical, with a genuine quality of confidence and open-hearted authority. What keeps this open-hearted being in the presence from happening? One person's response to this question was the fear of losing control. I think that many people experience not knowing as feeling dumb. But some of the most extraordinary experiences that I've had in which a truth was revealed to me all had the quality of what we could call bearing witness, of just simply being there, being here with humility and a tremendous and yet relaxed very relaxed interest a very open hearted connected mindfulness and discerning attention and no need to make meaning a very important piece of this no need to make meaning in our practice and in our life as our practice. Until we can suspend the need for making meaning, we can't experience direct revelation. We can't experience direct insight, wisdom. And I know that it's not so easy to be unarmed, so to say, meaning to be without our habitual ways and self-centered identification. Fear can sometimes leap up in us. And so we train the heart, we train the mind, slowly and with great care in order to be able to see clearly and let go. The poet Rilke exhorts us to return to things themselves. But the way of them, themselves, can be difficult as we're faced with our self, our seemingly set and solid self. It seems that in a way, we're overtrained regarding ourselves. We're usually the total center of our attention. Thus, it's very difficult to come and see, as the Buddha invites us, to return to things themselves beyond this notion of a self. engaging in our practice this creative process of our practice with joyful interest and in open-hearted mindfulness is the way towards freeing up honesty authenticity and energy which creates the conditions that allow direct revel- the direct revelation of insight into the way of things I've learned a lot from children in this arena. In my thirties I taught art uh, at an alternative school for a number of years. The five five to eight year olds loved painting. And sometimes I asked them to paint uh, in relationship to a particular theme. But often it was just free expression painting. One morning uh, as I was walking around looking and commenting on paintings in progress or in process and those that were already finished, one little boy said to me, You always like all of our paintings. How come? Well this little boy noticed something and he asked the right question. Children sometimes have a way of saying things that kind of stop us in our tracks. Yes, I do, I thought. And how come? (laughs) That was so many years ago, I don't remember exactly what I said to him, but something about um, honesty and expressing from the inside. And how could I not feel anything but appreciation? I could ask questions and occasionally make suggestions, but there wasn't anything to dislike or feel critical about because what each person painted was their honest expression at that moment. And somehow he seemed to understand, and he shook his head quite vigorously up and down and kind of beamed at me. So, making kind of a big stretch and uh, regarding this in relationship to our practice. As adults, can we be so unarmed in relationship to what occurs within us with the attitude of this is what's happening right here, right now? while at the same time with honest interest being mindful and seeing clearly with an open-hearted receptivity to the right answers so to say that will inevitably show up to our perennial questions regarding the way towards being truly happy and really truly being at ease in this life. One of the creative endeavors that's been part of my life off and on over, over the years, uh, since I was in my early 20s, is the making of portrait sculpture with a particular person being the live model for each piece of work. And this work has been uh, a deep and powerful direct practice and a metaphor of practice for me particularly in relationship to the cultivation of mindfulness, discernment, effort, joy, tranquility, concentration, and wisdom, which are all factors of enlightenment. So just to share a little bit of this, uh, as I think it may be uh, a useful illustration uh, in the context of our retreat, In order to create a likeness of a person in clay, a tremendous depth of concentration and mindful investigation needs to take place. A head, its shape, the neck and shoulders, the facial features, how to see it as a whole and then know it both in its wholeness and in its particulars so that the seeing and knowing can be transferred through the eyes the mind heart and body out through the hands and fingers into the clay a daunting and actually impossible task if one doesn't begin to see what one is looking at as simply hundreds, maybe thousands, of relationships that actually change with each angle of seeing. And so the subject's head uh, and face begin to break down into a series of relational forms Forms that exist only in relationship to each other. Forms that exist only in spatial relationship to each other. There's no head, no face, no person as we ordinarily know it. There's just a series of relationships to be known. It's a very intimate process. Much more so than if I... Uh, just keep looking at the whole form. The completely unique characteristics of the face in front of me, me become very clearly and deeply known but not as any fixed or separate entity. And the universals of all faces become known quite intimately. At the same time the concepts of solidity fixedness separateness lose their habitual potency and actually quite thoroughly fall away in moments what is this nose this eye this chin any nose any eye any chin seeing and knowing through the microscope of an open-hearted and deeply connected mindful investigation from revolving angles moment after moment, seeing and knowing the space between the inside corner of an eye in relationship to the downward slope of the eye's lower edge, in relation to the bulging curvature of the eyeball as it rounds out to touch the outer edge and corner of the skin around the eye and on and on and on. With all of this seeing and knowing coming out of my fingers and forming the clay little by little by little. And as though magically a face emerges out of the clay a face that bears the likeness and projects some of the quality of the liveliness of this human being sitting in front of me. It's uh, not so easy to um, render this creative process into words. So I hope that it's been at least uh, somewhat communicated and somewhat helpful for you. As I mentioned, and as I'm sure some of you are aware of, concentration and insight practice are in themselves an art and in many ways very close to the creative process. During one particular uh, time period when I was quite deeply immersed in sculpture work, I went to um, see a movie at the theater one evening. And I was quite struck that evening by all of the faces of all of the people in the lobby. Each one having all of the same equipment. <laughs> Noses, eyes, mouth, cheeks, chins, foreheads, etc. And yet each person's face being totally unique, just based on the tiny nuances of how all of the parts were interrelated. My awareness that evening just jumping back and forth, back and forth, seeing the diversity in the unity or the diversity in the one, we could say, and the unification or the one in the diversity, that evening they weren't separate. In the Avatamsaka Sutra, the Flower Ornament Sutra, or a Flower Adornment Sutra, which is revered. Um, as a treasure of sensual imagery and considered to be the highest teaching of the buddha in chinese mahayana buddhism there's a short section within this very long sutra that elaborates on my on my very brief and small experience that evening at the movie theater <clears throat> and the, this is from the avatamsaka sutra The bodhisattva sees the interdependent nature of all things, sees in one Dharma all dharmas, sees in all dharmas the one Dharma, sees the multiplicity in the one, and the one in the multiplicity, sees the one in the immeasurable, and the immeasurable in the one. The immeasurable meaning the indescribable whole of life as it unfolds. And the sutra goes on, birth and existence of all dharmas is of a changing nature and thus unreal and cannot touch the enlightened ones. The nature of things quite naturally reveals itself. It's not hidden. We enter into the mystery through the intimacy of our practice rather than staying at a distance, rather than staying separate from it. In very precise and sometimes minute ways or at times through a more spacious, less precise mode of mindfulness and investigation, we come to know the nature of things, anything, all things, ordinary things. For a moment we touch into the absolute truth of the relative world and it makes a difference in how we live our life. Mindfulness, investigation, and discernment are our guides through what at times might feel like an impenetrable forest of experience. And as we all well know, life can be uh, challenging and difficult at times. Practice can be challenging and difficult at times. Not uh, new news to any of you. along the way we find that it takes a deep willingness and a certain courage to traverse this path of awakening. People sometimes describe their experience at particular points along the path as feeling as though they're a spiritual warrior. And I think that at times many of us view, uh, experience and view our life as a string of blessings or a string of curses. Through our practice our life is our practice we learn to not get caught caught up in the attachment to blessings and the aversion to curses. with mindful presence and clear discernment as the ground of our life we learn to view and to relate to life as a continual opportunity an opportunity to deepen our practice and our understanding with all of it affording us the amazing opportunity of awakening and I think for many of us, if we're really truly candid, we may occasionally feel like spiritual warriors in the process. A few years ago now, uh, it became clear that uh, I needed to have an old filling removed and a crown put on this uh, same molar. So maybe uh, a curse from one point of view, and I'm quite severely allergic to a number of local anesthetics. So Novocaine or any of the other local anesthetics used for dental work are definitely not for me. So maybe another curse from a particular point of view. But I have a deep and strong practice. Definitely a blessing. (laughs) That appointment with uh, the dentist was uh, quite a challenge. The challenge of continually relaxing and staying open to the experience of the moment. Focusing and connecting with all that was going on in my mouth and noticing the constant change of each sensation sometimes a very strong, intense sensation, and sometimes a more mild sensation, being present from its beginning all the way through to its end. As soon as I would lose my concentration, mindfulness, and clarity of a discernment, ignorance immediately moved in. What was merely unpleasant quickly became strong disliking, with story-making trying to edge its way into consciousness. And immediately the moment would verge on becoming an unbearable moment. And there was a moment uh, during that uh, particular dentist appointment where I completely lost the concentrated mindful connection to what was occurring. And my body jerked very strongly in reaction to a particular sensation, which surprised the dentist quite a bit and was a wake-up call for me. And it was in moments a great surprise to me how easy it was to be there, as long as I was clearly purely present just with what was happening. Time lost its ordinary parameters like it sometimes does with intensive retreat practice. I wasn't waiting for the end of anything and in fact there were surprising moments of feeling like I could just stay here forever and that would be okay. Fortunately I didn't have to stay there forever and it was okay. So what is a curse? What is a blessing? As our practice takes deeper and deeper root, its blessing begins to permeate all the corners of our life. Mindfulness and investigation of states grounded in interest and in open-hearted non-judgmental receptivity is our guide through what sometimes may feel like an impenetrable forest of experience. We can't expect or depend on something outside of our own mind and heart or someone else to do it for us. The invitation is ehipasika. come and see. When we connect and clearly see the next step is right in front of us, one step at a time. One early autumn morning uh, some years ago I went for a day-long hike. With a friend up into the mountains uh, here in the Taos Ski Valley. My hiking buddy is uh, a longtime Dharma practitioner. And so we like to hike in silence. And usually we walk alone, though not very far uh, away from each other on the trail. And often we speak together only during uh, rest breaks and at lunchtime. Hiking days like this for me and for my friend are some of our most treasured non-retreat practice times. There's a deep and connected relationship through all of the sense doors to the surrounding world, to our own bodily sensations and movement, and to the feelings and the various states that come and go in the mind and heart as we take our time making our way up the trail as we were wending our way through this particular Rocky Mountain landscape on that day two young people came up behind us moving very fast actually running up the mountain and they each had a small yellow plastic object in their hand which they were quite intently uh, holding up and out in front of them and we exchanged very cursory hellos, and I asked them what the yellow object was. And I was told it was a GPS. As if I, of course, would know what that was. And they were in such a hurry, uh, that there was uh, no opportunity to ask, what is a GPS? Now this, this was before GPS's were, became so widely used, I do know what they are now. <laughs> Well, my friend that I was hiking with, she knew a little bit about it and said that it's an instrument that tells you where you are. (laughs) And as soon as she said this, just like what's happening in this room now, as soon as she said this, we looked at each other with a kind of amazement and we began to laugh. And we laughed and laughed and laughed. (laughs) We couldn't stop laughing for quite a while. The experience somehow really tickled each of our funny bones. That particular day where my friend and I were was being connected with and known over and over and over again in so many ways and on so many levels as we were slowly making our way up the mountain. The intermediary of a global positioning system seemed so silly at that point and in that setting. A poem by David Wagoner called Lost. Stand still. The trees ahead and the bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here, and you must treat it as a powerful stranger, must ask permission to know it and be known. The forest breathes. Listen, it answers, I have made this place around you. If you leave it, it, you may come back again, saying, here. No two trees are the same to raven. No two branches are the same to wren. If what a tree, a bush does, is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. So again, Ahi pasika, come and see, come and see for yourself. The Buddha with his great clarity and compassion spoke about what he called the nutriment, for the arising development, fulfillment and perfection of each of the enlightenment factors as I mentioned this morning in the reflection and so, of course, for the investigation of states. He said that we must give a wise and careful attention to both beneficial and unbeneficial states. Beneficial states such as loving-kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, equanimity, as well as to the so-called hindrances sleepiness, restlessness, the wanting mind, the aversive mind, the doubting mind. He said it's essential that we give a wise and careful attention to states of suffering and to the cause of suffering itself and to the end of suffering. Again and again, the Buddha directs us towards seeing and knowing the particular individual essences of beneficial or wholesome states, as well as seeing and knowing the individual characteristics of unwholesome or unbeneficial states. And the Buddha again and again also directs us towards seeing and knowing the three universal characteristics of all states of body and mind. The essential unsatisfactoriness, the impermanence, the selfless, empty nature of all mental and bodily experiences. This is the primary nutriment for the arising, development, fulfillment, and perfection of the enlightenment factor of investigation. Investigation, clear discernment, is primarily what counters delusion, primarily what counters ignorance. The Buddha tells us that we should ask appropriate questions and that it's helpful to reflect on the real possibility of deep understanding. We're encouraged to associate with people who have understanding and it's suggested that we don't spend too much time with those who don't have understanding. The Buddha spoke in a beautiful way about the internal purification of the heart and mind as being, and these are his words, like the light of a lamp's flame that arises with a clean lamp bowl, wick, and oil as its support, and that bodily and mental formations become evident and clear to one who tries to comprehend them with what he called a purified base. Meaning a mind, a heart that's cleansed through the ethical behavior, the virtue of sila. And the purification of the mind, the heart that comes about through the development of concentration. And jhana, if one is inclined towards jhana. Investigation is also nurtured by balancing our faculties of faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration and wisdom so that one of these wholesome qualities of mind of heart doesn't override or overshadow any of the others. clear discrimination of bodily and mental states is a requisite for awakening, a requisite for the arising of wisdom. And so, in this light, the enlightenment factor of investigation is spoken about as the wisdom factor. And a brief quote from Japanese philosopher and teacher Yanagi, he uh, wrote and practiced, taught the way of tea. They saw, before all else they saw, they were able to see. Ancient mysteries flew from this wellspring of seeing. the difference between the person with a mind unconsciously steeped in me, mine, and I and the one who lives, sees, and knows through a mind steeped in mindful awareness and investigation of states is that within the narrowness of the mind steeped in me mine and I, there's a strong and sticky identification with all of the hopes and fears that arise, which is a very painful place to live one's life from. When the heart, when the mind, is steeped in the factors of mindfulness and investigation, one isn't very often caught or thrown off isn't very often ruffled or confused by inner and outer events. We see what is. We know it beyond the seeming appearances. We aren't caught nearly as often by hopes and fears in relationship to the moment's experiences. They come. We let them go as they naturally do anyway. Our practice affords us the great potential gift of not clinging, not being identified with and attached to experience all of the time. What is, is just what is, moment to moment, more and more often. The direct investigation and discrimination of states is what brings the deepest understanding. Otherwise, our understanding is based only on the intellect. It's merely cerebral understanding, a kind of imaginary understanding. And as I'm sure you know, at least some of the time, It's impossible to think our way out of tension. It's impossible to think our way out of stress, out of confusion. It's impossible to think our way out of suffering. And it's impossible to think our way into truly letting go. We can't think our way to freedom. Awakening is Beyond or beneath the intellect. It's beyond or beneath concept. So, how can we possibly use concept to get us there? When insight is born, when understanding is born, it's deep and integrated and simple, it's cellular. As someone once described their experience to me. The great Indian teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj tells us the mind, the thinking mind, is interested in what happens, while awareness a mindful and discerning presence, that's what that means in this case, while awareness is interested in the mind, the heart. The child is after the toy, but the mother watches the child, not the toy. With investigation we move out of the dark and come into the light the light of wisdom in reference to his own enlightenment the Buddha said the eye is born knowledge was born wisdom was born understanding was born light was born as awakening beings we're moving toward our inheritance from the Buddha by simply becoming a real human being. A description that Sada Upandita uses for one who is awake a real human being. And this is the greatest gift that we can offer to this world I'd like to close the talk this evening with a teaching from the Buddha that I've already uh, offered in this retreat, but I'd like to offer it again because it's such a good one. It's called A Single Excellent Night. Let me not revive the past, nor on the future build my hopes, for the past has been left behind and the future has not been reached. Instead, with insight, let me see each presently arisen state. Let me know this and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. Today, the effort must be made. Tomorrow, death may come. Who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away but one who dwells thus ardently, relentlessly, by day, by night. It is in her, it is in him, the peaceful sage has said, who has had a single excellent night. And let's sit together for just a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.